John 16. John 16. And as you get there, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we've just confessed in our song, no merit of my own, his merit, his anger to suppress, my only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness. Heavenly Father, we know that we have no merit. We know that we are sinners. We know that the penalty for our sin is condemnation. We know that every moment that we are not in hell is by the grace of God alone. And yet this morning, we gather joyfully, hopefully, and Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we know that we are not worthy, but you are. That there is no merit that can save us in ourselves, but in Christ alone. And it's Christ this morning that we confess. Heavenly Father, may you give me boldness to proclaim the truth of the word of God this morning with authority and with clarity. May your spirit work, may your word go forth powerfully and not return void. May you be honored in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. This weekend up at camp was counselor training. I did not go this week. Jenna Toomey went up. Uh, she's planning on going with some of our girls this summer, and she went up to counselor training. And, and I was thinking this weekend as she was going, thinking back on my years at camp, and there's something neat about camp. There's something powerful about camp, about changing your surroundings and focusing on the Word of God. And one of my favorite nights of camp is always the last night. After spending all week in the Word of God, after, after being preached at all week, after being surrounded by, by godly brothers and sisters in Christ who, who are pushing you and pointing you to Christ all week long, as you sit there on that last night, there's something powerful about those last words together. That evening is your, really your last evening together as, as a cabinet. It's probably the last evening that those people in that room will be together, just them. As you're sitting there and as the counselor, as you're talking to uh, those young men or those young ladies, there's some weight in those moments. There's, there's so much that you want them to understand and so little that you can get them to understand in one week. In those last moments, those last words that you're going to give them before they go back to their normal lives, wherever that may be, Whatever that may look like, you try, you, you try to point them to Christ. The same is true at a high school graduation. As the valedictorian gets up and they do their speech. That is the last time that those people will all be in the room together. A group that has grown up together. And, and, and often those, those speeches are very powerful speeches. There's a lot of time put into it. What is it that I want this class to understand? 
Did you look back through history, famous last words? There's all kinds of examples like that. At a moment, as one thing closes, then another opportunity opens as people move from one moment to the next. Probably one of the most famous is in March of 1942, General Douglas MacArthur, as he's forced to abandon the Philippines. What does he say famously? I will return. I'll be back. I will return. That is the one message he wanted to get across to those who's leaving behind. I am coming back. And a little over two years later, on October 20th, 1944, General MacArthur waded ashore on the Philippines once again, and he proclaimed, I have returned. He was back. So we come to John 16, 25 to 33 this morning. Really, these are Jesus' last words, at least recorded for us in John. In John 17, we have uh, the high priestly prayer. Jesus is, is praying. And he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, he prays for those coming later. But this passage is the last passage recorded in John where Jesus talks to his disciples collectively. In John 18, he's arrested, he's taken. This is the last passage where he's talking to his disciples before the cross in the book of John. And this is what Jesus wants them to know. This is the truth that he leaves them with. As we work our way through here, we'll see the love of the Father, the hour at hand, and the promise of the future. First thing we see is the love of the Father in verses 25 to 28. Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I will... Do not, and I do not say that, you will, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. These things is this entire farewell discourse. It starts in chapter 13. It's gone all the way through chapter 16. It actually closes in chapter 17 with his high priestly prayer. All of these things that I have said to you, they've been in figures of speech. The word is the, it's the idea of a, a veiled statement. It's simple language that, that contains lofty ideas. John MacArthur says this way, it's a veiled statement that is pregnant with meaning. Example would be in John 15 as he talks about the vine and the branches. It's a simple picture, but it is pregnant with meaning, with eternal truth, with lofty ideas. I am telling you these things. And it's not that what Jesus is telling them is confusing. It's not that it's not true. It's just that they don't have the capacity to understand it. It would be like trying to explain a car or a helicopter if you came across an, an Indian tribe that was isolated in the jungle and had never seen anything like that and you tried to explain to them a helicopter or, or a car. They just have no capacity to understand what you're talking about. 
That's the idea here. Prior to the cross, prior to the resurrection, these disciples have no capacity to understand all these truths that Jesus is unpacking for them. They have no idea of the glory that lies before them, of the hope that they will have in Christ. Jesus alludes to that in this next statement. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. You you can't grasp this now. You can't understand this now. What I am trying to tell you is too lofty for you to get. That doesn't mean you're lost. That doesn't mean just, oh well, it's gone. We missed our chance. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in these figures of speech, but you will understand, I will tell you plainly about the Father. You don't understand now, you can't grasp it now, but a time is coming when you will grasp it, when it will make sense. There's hope in that message. There is a change that is coming. Again, he's looking forward at that point, past the cross, past the resurrection. Calvin notes of this, where he says, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. John Calvin notes that when he says that he will tell them about the Father, he reminds us that the design of doctrine is to lead us to God. I will tell you everything and you will understand and it will unfold before you and you will grasp it. I mean, just think about the disciples. Think about the change that we see in them from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to Ephesians and Philippians and and Acts and and 1 Peter and 2 Peter and 1, 2, and 3 John. The change that comes... These men that can't grasp what seems to us to be simple truths in John are unfolding the glorious truths of the gospel in the rest of the New Testament. These things that are to them in John, figures of speech, become glorious truths of the Father. They do grasp it. They do get it. And that's what Jesus is telling them. You, you, you're not, you may not understand this fully now, It may seem to you to be figures of speech, to be be veiled statements now, but you will get it. Just hold on. Just trust me. The time is coming when I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day, after the cross, after the resurrection, in that day, he will ask in my name. This is the sixth time. In the Pharaoh discourse that Jesus has told them to ask in his name, don't you think that's kind of important? That's one of those things that he's really trying to get through to them. You will ask in my name. It goes along with the idea that Jesus has been stressing that he is going to the Father. I'm going to the Father and you will ask in my name. You will have an advocate in heaven. But you won't just have an advocate in heaven. Look what he says next. You will also have an ally in heaven, an ally in the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, but I don't say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. You will ask in my name. You will ask by his blood, on his merit. 
You'll have access to God. You will come before Him boldly, not in your name, but in my name. But as you come before God boldly in my name, don't get the idea that Jesus is is our friend and that God is our enemy. Don't get the idea that, that prayer is going to Jesus who then goes before the Father and falls on His knees and begs for us. In prayer, you have access to God alone in Christ. You have access to the Father. You are going to God because of Christ. Asking in in Jesus' name is on His merit. It's recognizing that I have no merit in myself. I have no right to be here. I'm coming in Jesus' name. I need Him and Him alone. It is His blood that cleanses. And as you come, I don't say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. You have an advocate. But don't let that give you the idea that that God is somehow against you and Jesus is for you. You have an ally in the Father, for the Father himself loves you. As you come to the Father, you're not coming to to a grumpy old man who is removed from you, who wants nothing to do with you, but his son has to plead with him to hear you out. You're coming to a God who loves you. It is that God himself who sent his son to die for you, to be your advocate. The Father Himself loves you. If you're familiar with Catholicism, Catholic theology teaches that you can pray to the saints. In their idea, the saints have have gone before us. They are more like Christ. They are closer to God than we are because they are in His presence. And so you can Pray to them, and then they will pray for you. It's praying to the saints who are closer to to God than you are, and they will go on your behalf. This passage right here completely obliterates that idea. Jesus himself says, Don't come in my name thinking that I will then go to the Father on your behalf. You're coming in my name. You have access in my name. But it's the Father who loves you. It's the Father who wants to hear you. No one has more access to God than you do in Christ. No one in heaven has more access to God than you do in Christ. For the Father himself loves you. Why? Why does the Father love me? Why is it that I have this access in Christ, that I can come before him in Christ's name, that he will hear me? Notice what the passage says. It does not say, because you are powerful men. Because you disciples will do some great miracles. That's why God loves you. It doesn't say, 
Because you disciples are so much better than everyone else. You do these great works, and that's why the Father loves you. That's why you can approach him in my name. It says, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It is by faith alone. The Father does not love them because they understand. The Father does not love them because of some great works that they will do. The Father loves them because they love Jesus and they believe. And the same is true of you. The Father loves you because you believe. It is true that he loves the world, but there is a special love for those that are in Christ. A unique love. The Father loves you and you have access Verse 28 sums up Jesus' ministry, his mission. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. It's a statement of his divinity. I came from the Father. That is his incarnation. From the Father into the world. We see that in Philippians 2, John 1. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His death, his resurrection, his ascension are all tied up in that. I came from the Father. I will accomplish my mission and I will go back to the Father. It really kind of puts Isaiah 55.11 into whole new uh, meaning. Isaiah 55.11, God's word never returns void. Jesus, the word of God, did not return void. He came from the Father, and he returned to the Father triumphant. I came from the Father, I have come into the world, and I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I will accomplish what I was sent to accomplish. I will return victorious. I have come, and I am returning. So in these first several verses, we see the love of the Father. If you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, the Father loves you. You have access. He wants to hear from you. Secondly, verses 29 to 32, we see the hour that is at hand. It becomes clear in verse 29 and 30 that the disciples still have no idea what's going on. They completely miss it. How they respond, what they, look what they say. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and, have not, and are not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. It's clear that they do not yet understand, even though they think they do. Jesus is looking to the future. He's looking post-resurrection. The disciples think they understand now. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a conversation with someone who, over the course of the conversation, even though at the beginning of the conversation it seemed like they knew what they were talking about, as the conversation progresses, it becomes clear that they have absolutely no idea what they are talking about. They just think they do, or they're pretending that they do. I have been that person before. It's almost... Funny what we find here. Oh yeah, now we get it. You, in saying that, you're admitting that you don't get it. 
Jesus answered them, do, do you believe? It's funny, that kind of harkens back to uh, in chapter 13, verse 38. It's a parallel with Peter and Jesus' response. When Jesus tells them, you'll abandon me, and Peter responds, I will lay down my life for you. And how does Jesus respond? In the same way he does here with a question. Will you? For the cock crows, you will deny me three times. It's that same thing that we see here. Do you believe? But the hour is coming when you will deny me. You say that you believe me, but the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. It's not that their faith is genuine. It's that their, their confidence is misplaced. Their confidence is not in Jesus. They, they don't understand what he is saying. But they think they do. Their confidence is in their self. Okay, okay, yeah, we get this. We get this. I, I know what we're doing. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't get it. Just trust me. Have confidence in me. Confidence enough to not understand and yet to follow. Their faith is genuine. Their confidence is misplaced. Behold, the hour is coming indeed is at hand. There's a time coming when you will understand, but the hour that is, is at hand is not the hour that you will understand. It is the hour that you will abandon me. The hour at hand is the hour when you will deny me, when you will be scattered each to his own home, when you will leave me alone. How disheartening this must have been to the disciples. I'm sure in themselves they're responding the same way Peter did back in chapter 13, verse 38. What are you talking about, Lord? We won't deny you. We won't leave you. We won't go to our own home. We got a good thing going here. But you will be scattered. You will leave me alone. You will fail me. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. You will fail me, but the Father never will. Jesus here models the hope that we have in a faithful God. His disciples, his closest friends, those he most trusts on earth, will deny him will abandon him, will leave him in his greatest hour of need, and yet even there, the Father will not leave him. The Father will not abandon him. The picture here is between their unfaithfulness and the faithfulness of God. I am not alone, even in this hour. When you will abandon me, even in this hour, the Father is with me. Finally, the last thing we see as we come to verse 33 is the promise of the future. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Your confidence will wane. You disciples, your, your, your courage will fail you. 
but I will overcome. I have said these things, again, this is the entire discourse, it's John 13 through 16, everything that he has said to them, as they were in the upper room, as they've left the upper room, as they've been walking through the streets of Jerusalem towards the Mount of Olives, all of these things that I've said to you in this last speech, this last conversation, for this purpose, that in me you may have peace. In me, you may have peace. Think about the context in which he says that. He tells them, you're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me, and yet I'm not going to leave you, because in me, you can still have peace. You will deny me, and yet in me, you can still have peace. You will leave me, and yet in me, you can still have peace. Peace. For I will not abandon you. I will overcome. Your peace is not in your circumstances. Your peace is in Christ. In fact, that's exactly what it goes on to say. In the world, you'll have tribulation. He's already unpacked that for his disciples in chapter 15, 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. You will face persecution. The world will hate you. They hated me. They will hate you. They will persecute you. You will face tribulation. And yet, even as he tells them that, he promises them peace. How? How can you tell me that I will face pain How can you tell me that I will face hatred, that I will face denial? How can you tell me that I will suffer and yet I will have peace? People in those situations don't have peace. Where does this peace come from? Look what he says. But take heart. You will face tribulation. You will face the worst of circumstances. The world will hate you. You will face persecution. And yet in the midst of the world's tribulation, find comfort for you have peace because I have overcome the world. In the midst of that tribulation, take heart. Be encouraged. You will abandon me. The world will hate you. But take heart, for I will overcome. Take heart. Because I win. I will overcome the world. It's a fascinating passage when you look, take all these verses together. As you work through this, the disciples don't come out looking very good. They don't understand. Jesus tells them, you will leave me. You'll abandon me. And yet at the same time, he says, but the Father loves you. But you can have peace in me, for I will overcome the world. 
The Father does not love you because you understand. The Father does not love you because of your great works. The Father does not love you because of anything that you will do. Your peace does not come from what you do. Your peace does not come from the fact that you understand. Brothers and sisters, the message of this passage is simply this. It is in Christ alone. These disciples failed, and they failed utterly. They abandoned their Lord. They had no idea what he was talking about. And yet in Christ alone, they triumphed. Because I have overcome the world. You don't have to overcome the world in your own strength. You can't overcome the world in your own strength. Christ has overcome the world for you. And the invitation of this passage is trust in him. Don't put your hope in your own works. Don't think that you can earn your way to heaven, that you can somehow do enough good works that will outweigh your bad works and, and God will let you in. You can't overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world for you. Trust in him. Lay aside all your merit that you think you have. Everything that you would cling to. Lay it aside and turn to faith in Jesus Christ this morning. For he has overcome the world. This is the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples. It's recorded for us in John before the cross. As a group. John 17, the entire thing is a prayer. John 18, Jesus is arrested. In fact, verse 33 kind of sums up this entire discourse. In me you can have peace. You will face tribulation, but I will overcome the world. That's what it all comes down to, in Christ alone. As we come to the end this morning, two points of application. Number one, pray with boldness. Because in heaven you have both an advocate and an ally. You have Christ who pleads for you and the Father who loves you. So pray with boldness. For your God hears, your God understands. But don't just pray with boldness and then live passively. Live with confidence. Because your God has overcome. Pray with boldness and live with confidence. The world will persecute you. The world will hate you. You're not promised a, a, a glamorous life in Christ. Promise the glories of eternity. Promise the hope that is yours in him. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Live with confidence. Pray with boldness. Trust in Christ.